Amen. If you'll turn in your Bibles then to Luke chapter 22. Uh, Luke chapter 22, we'll start in verse 1. As you find that, if uh, you'll uh, find your way to your feet, if you're able this morning, uh, for the reading of God's word. Uh, we will read this wonderful passage, verses 1 through 23. Uh, Luke chapter 22. Uh, hear then the word of, of your God. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Then he said to him, or they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it would be who was going to do this. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Uh, Lord, indeed we have come uh, to receive holy manna uh, from your hand. Indeed, we have come to receive uh, the bread of life, Christ himself. Uh, so I pray that by your spirit, uh, we would receive uh, just that in the preaching of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Throughout human history and across cultures, holidays uh, tend to be accompanied by a corresponding meal, right? Uh, whether it's the you know, the sizzle of uh, the burger being flipped on a July afternoon, uh, on a July 4th, or whether it's the, the sweet aroma of the pie that is baking for the, uh, you know, the Christmas dessert that's going to happen later that day in a, on a cold uh, December afternoon, or, uh, you know, whether it's, it's the, the permeating smells that just take over the house starting at about 9 a.m. On, on Thanksgiving morning. 
Uh, we know what it means that uh, when we celebrate, when we gather as people, we, we tend to do so over the table. And I think God has made us this way uh, in his image and throughout Scripture, and certainly in the Lord's Supper, there's a, a focus on God's people coming together at the table. Uh, one, for sustenance, for strength, for uh, the food that we need food, it's a necessity, but also for celebration, also for celebration. Jesus prepares a table for his disciples. We see that in this passage, in this first Lord's Supper, something that we continue to do as the church, even today, as, as Christ instituted it. And we continue to come for celebration. We tend to say that, celebrating the Lord's Supper, but we also come for sustenance. And we come to the table for spiritual nourishment, as we'll see, as Christ offers himself uh, to us. And so this morning, uh, we will look at uh, two aspects. What does it look like to come to the Lord's table? Uh, number one, it looks, like, uh, it, it looks like we should remember, number one. And number two, we should receive. There are things that we remember. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And there are things that we receive, namely Christ himself, as we'll see. And so number one, remember. I remember number, number one under that heading is we remember his betrayal. We remember his betrayal. It's interesting, you know, here we have uh, the Lord's Supper, and, and, you know, you can think of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's, you know, beautiful painting, although they wouldn't have been sitting at a table, but, uh, you know, most depictions are pretty peaceful, and we think of it as a quiet meal with his disciples, and certainly there was an intimacy, but the bookends of the Lord's Supper, especially here in Luke, are betrayal and suffering. That's the first thing we hear about, um, and, and that's what we're going to see. Uh, but to set the context, you see now uh, that there is the Feast of Unleavened Bread draws near, which is called the Passover. Uh, this, of course, was a, a, a key feast uh, for the Old Testament Jews, one of three main feasts that they would celebrate. Uh, this would be uh, the first of them. This would be after the exodus from Egypt. This became uh, the first of months for them. It would have been around March for us on our calendar. Uh, but uh, the Passover was instituted. It was talked about even before God brought his people out of Egypt. So before it even happened, God was letting them know this is how it's going to happen. Uh, you will sacrifice a lamb. You will put its blood over your doorposts. You will prepare a meal with unleavened bread because you're about to leave in haste. You're about to be taken out of Egypt. And so you need to make bread quickly. Uh, this is a, a meal with your clothes on, your sandals on. And God prepared them for this. And uh, God's judgment did come through Egypt, but he literally passed over every house that had uh, the lamb's blood over it. Uh, the people ate the meal, and then they came out of Egypt. And so this becomes for them a celebration, a commemoration, a, a key thing, because this is when God's people, although obviously they were his people before that, were really formed as the people of Israel. He brought them out of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and now they had this meal, this festival every year to commemorate what God had done in their life. This had continued uh, throughout uh, God's, uh, the time of God's people and all the way up here until uh, the New Testament time as, as Jesus is working. And certainly Jesus and his disciples would celebrate. Um, certainly they celebrated the, the years before this, and now they're getting ready to celebrate uh, now. Uh, by this time, the practice had shifted somewhat, although very similar. As it's described here in Luke, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover became somewhat synonymous. They, they were two distinct festivals. You could see that in Exodus 12, Exodus 23, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 16. 
Uh, but by the time of the New Testament, they were sort of so closely associated. You would have the Passover, and then you would have the seven-day celebration afterward, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is what they're preparing to do. And so that sort of sets the stage. This Passover is about to be prepared, as we'll see. Uh, but there's other preparations that are going on. Christ is about to prepare the Passover, but uh, there's other things at work. Uh, verse 2 says, The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Luke's told us this many times now. They want to put Jesus to death, but they fear the people. So they don't know what to do. But as luck would have it, to say it in a cheeky way, Judas appears. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And watch this. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. Remember, they fear the people. Now they have a spy on the inside. They have... Um, Judas coming to them. Um, unless you think Judas was sort of innocent and Satan just showed up here, if you read the Gospel of John and other accounts, you see his heart has already been hardening, already been bringing him to this point where he would say, he would initiate and say, I want to betray the Son of Man. And so he goes to them, they're plotting, and whether they realize it or not then, uh, they're helping to prepare for the Passover. They're helping to prepare for the delivery of Jesus, who is called the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. His disciples are about to make preparations of the meal and the feast, and Christ will give it new meaning, as we'll see. But Jesus is the Lamb of God who was about to go to the cross, and these men don't know that they're playing a part in the preparations for the true Passover that's about to take place. And so you see then this bookend of betrayal at the beginning of the passage, and then even right in the midst of the supper, betrayal and suffering is just throughout this meal. Uh, verse 15 says, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I mean, suffering is right on the edge, even as the meal is spread before them. He says, I won't eat and drink again uh, until uh, the kingdom of God has come. This is a last meal with his disciples. And then in verse 21, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. I mean, even as they're partaking, betrayal is right at hand. He says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they start to question one another. Who is it? Who, one of the twelve? We can't believe it. Who will do this? So remember his betrayal. Remember that this was no quiet meal. His suffering was right on the precipice. Number two, remember his purpose. Remember his purpose. Uh, Jesus here begins to send his disciples in, verse 7. Uh, verses 7 through 13 is interesting. It, it, it gives these details of him sending his disciples in to go and prepare the Passover meal. Uh, this would have included, obviously, sacrificing uh, the Passover sacrifice of the temple, overseeing that. He gives this role to Peter and to John. Um, but they say, where, Lord? You know, we haven't talked about any plans yet. And in, in a sort of an interesting passage, very similar to when he was going into Jerusalem and said, you know, you'll find a man, he has a donkey, just tell him the Lord has need of it. In a very similar way, they, they go in and, and Jesus knows he has this plan. 
Um, and they find the man just as it was told, and uh, they make their way to the upper room, and there they prepare uh, the meal. They prepare the lamb, they prepare the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, all of it. Uh, according to um, Old Testament teaching, the meal is uh, prepared. Uh, but, but, but in these preparations, you see uh, that Jesus has purpose here. Jesus is not a, a, a victim. He, he's not about to be surprised by the fact that Judas is working to betray him. Even as the meal is being prepared, Christ is preparing himself as the, as the Passover lamb. Uh, he is no mere victim here. He is in charge of this situation. You see this in verse uh, 22. The Son of Man goes as, as it has been determined as it has been determined. You, you see elsewhere in Luke, uh, Jesus will repeat this phrase that he must suffer. He must suffer. In Greek, it could be translated, it is necessary. It is necessary that I suffer. It has been determined. We call this a divine must. It's not Jesus looks around, kind of sees J- Judas looking a little sketchy and says, I, I got to think of a plan B here. No, this was the plan from the beginning of the, before the foundation of the world. Christ is coming to do the very thing uh, that he was called to do by his Father. And yet in his purpose, he's doing, he's doing a new thing here. He's doing a new thing here. They're preparing the Passover, and, which would have been very familiar to them as, as the different cups would be passed around, uh, as it led to the final cup, as we'll see, as bread is passed around, this would have been familiar. They would have been thinking of their deliverance. God rescued them, saved them. This would be on their minds as, 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 as good uh, Jews. And yet Christ is doing something new here. Because he must go to the cross after this. Uh, he, he must do this Passover with the disciples before that happened. Because he's doing something new, something foundational. Something as new and foundational as it was for uh, the, the God's people Israel when the original exodus happened. And we're told elsewhere in Luke that he's, he talks with Elijah and Moses about a new exodus that's about to take place. One bigger than an exodus from Egypt and slavery, as terrible as that seemed. This is an exodus away from a freedom from slavery to sin and to death. This is what Jesus is doing. And since this is a a new exodus, it requires a new Passover meal to be celebrated until the end of time, until we sit with him anew in the new kingdom at the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's his purpose. That's why he eagerly desires to set up this meal with his disciples. Remember his purpose. Number three, remember his suffering. Remember his suffering. This is similar to the first point, but... Again, even Paul, when he, when he, his passage of instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, you know, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. It sets the tone for the whole meal. Suffering is surrounding this whole meal, even as celebration does. And we see, um, you know, starting in verse 14, the meal itself, the hour had come. And verse 16, he says, I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. And then verse 18, he, he won't drink it again until the kingdom. There's a finality here. This is Jesus' last meal with his disciples. It's interesting, and toward the end of World War II, as, as D-Day approached, uh, here's an account from a, a Northern Ireland veteran. Uh, he said, we knew that something was happening, but we didn't know what. 
Shortly before D-Day, we were told there was going to be an invasion and that we were to learn, uh, we were to learn off by heart every piece of the area in Normandy where we were landing. We were to learn every building, every haystack. They had very detailed maps. On the morning of D-Day, as the first Allied forces were landing, uh, the soldiers were given a huge breakfast, their last full meal for many weeks. Uh, quote, we had never seen a meal like it before. Uh, we were given anything we wanted. Another soldier describes eggs and bacon and coffee on tap. <laughs> uh, there was a wall tap that they could just walk up and fill their cup with coffee. Uh, you could get whatever you wanted. Uh, he describes it as a meal of luxury. <laughs> but no matter how luxurious that meal was, the battle loomed heavy on the hearts of the soldiers. This meal was a feast, and it becomes a feast, a joyful feast for us, first because for Christ it was a heavy night, a heavy meal, no quiet feast. We go to feast every time we come to the table because he soon would fast uh, we get to receive sweet and the, the sweet and the life-giving cup because he was about to drink down the bitter herbs of suffering. We get to eat and drink with joy because he, for the joy set before him, was about to endure the cross, despising the shame. Remember his suffering. Because that's what's pictured for us in the meal when he says, my body for you, my blood for you. He was looking out the window, as it were, seeing the cross, even as the meal was instituted. And so, friend, I need to ask you this morning, if, if you're one of his disciples, if you were there that first night, you know, would you have a place at the table? Or would you be deceiving yourself like Judas? Is Christ your Savior so that when he says, this, this is my body for you, you receive that with joy. This is my blood for you. Or does it feel like it's for someone else? Because you don't know this Savior. You might even respect him on some level. But have you put your trust in the Savior? Have you seen him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? Has he taken away your sin, your shame? Those who come to the table are those not who are perfect, but who are not carrying a backpack, just guilt-laden with sin and shame. Every time they hear the word of God, they're just burdened down because they say, I don't know this Jesus. I don't know this Savior. He takes that away for all those who put their trust in him. I would pray, friend, that you belong to Jesus. And I pray that even now you would put your faith in him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you would put your faith in him, he has taken away your sin. Cast it away to the depths of the sea. It's gone. That's available for you if you would only put your faith in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would so that you would have a place at this table, whether today or in a future date, a place to come and to receive from him. And so we remember his betrayal, his purpose, his suffering. And by doing that, number two, we receive. We receive, number one, his body. We receive his body. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Which is for you. I mean, they passed around the, the meal. They're thinking of the Passover. And as Jesus gives new and foundational meaning to it, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
What does Jesus mean? He, he, he doesn't mean uh, this bread has now been magically transformed physically into my body. Some people teach that. It's called transubstantiation. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church still teaches that how little that would make sense for Jesus sitting with his disciples physically there to say that what part of his body had gone into that bread? No. It, 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 and in fact, if, if that was the truth, it, it would lose so much of what Christ has for us. No, it, it didn't physically turn into his body, uh, nor is it just a, sort of what we call a bare sign. It's just a reminder. It is a reminder. Do this in remembrance of me. But they were actually receiving something from Christ spiritually through faith. And so we today can receive uh, from him uh, spiritually. Re- receive the bread of life. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus says, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He also says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Uh, he is the word of God, and he is our sustenance. Uh, Thomas Watson, in his wonderful little book called The Lord's Supper, we have a few on the book table, uh, almost a devotional look at the Lord's Supper, and I do commend this to you. Uh, He says, let us prize Christ's body. Every crumb of this bread of life is precious. Uh, Christ feeds us with himself. He is the very word of God by which his people live on. And so today, would you receive him and be nourished by him? Receive his body. Number two, receive his blood. He says, this is my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is given for you. He's doing something new, like we said. There's a new exodus from sin and shame. There's a, a new Passover being instituted. Here he speaks of a new covenant. In Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He's, he's doing a new thing. He is establishing his a new covenant people, and this will be the meal uh, that is a sign and seal for them until the end of the world. We will proclaim his death until he comes through this meal. Uh, like a wedding ring, right? A wedding ring isn't the marriage. It's, it's not the relationship, and yet the wedding ring is a perpetual reminder, a, a, a sign showing... The marriage, showing the commitment, showing the promises that have been made, showing the relationship that exists. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we're, we're reminded of the communion that we have with Christ as we put our faith in him anew. And as you receive uh, the blood, you, you come to what one theologian has called the, the wine press of the cross. One theologian puts it this way. The grape, paraphrasing what Jesus is saying, the grape cluster of my body was taken to the winepress of the cross for your salvation. And and in it was pressed the new wine of your redemption. Christ is about to enter the winepress. Thorns will press down on his brow. Uh, The spit will land upon his face. The blood will run down from his hands and his feet and his side. And do you hear what he said? He says, this is my blood for you. Christ didn't just die. He did die for the church. Uh, but sometimes we, we, we hide in that and we think, certainly Christ died for the church, not for me. But he says, this is my blood for you, of the new covenant that I have with you, 
of the promises uh, that are establish your adoption. His blood was given for you. His cup of bitter death means your cup of abundant life. Of abundant life. One, the Puritans like to say, a use of this doctrine. How does this affect us? It can comfort us and it can assure us. Number one, it can comfort us. Watson again, Christ's blood is better than wine. Though wine cheers the heart of a man that is well, yet it will not cheer his heart when the pangs of death are upon him. But Christ's blood will cheer the heart at such a time. In fact, it's best in affliction. It cures the trembling of the heart. If you've come with a heavy heart this morning, then the words, on the night he was betrayed, are good news for you. Because he was about to go and suffer. He knows the weight of this world, and he can offer you comfort. It could also offer assurance. Our, our sins did shut heaven. Christ's blood is the key which opens the gate of paradise for us. Uh, hence, one theologian calls the cross the tree of salvation because the blood which trickled down from the cross distills salvation. A Christian today, you receive his body and his blood as true food, true drink, true life, but even more, you receive Christ himself. And that's number three, receive Christ. He says in verse 14 and and 15, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. Uh, It's emphatic in the Greek. It's literally, I have desired a desire to sit with you in this meal. Uh, He is overcome thinking about uh, the cross is right at hand, but even before that is I need to share this meal with my disciples. Christian, you might need to hear that this morning. Christ is not simply duty-bound to sit with you at the Lord's table. Christ is not begrudgingly present with you at the Lord's Supper because you're technically allowed to come. Christ does not put up with you simply because you're part of the greater body of believers that he loves. He earnestly desires to share this meal with you. He's made all the preparations for the feast, and he's the lamb slain himself to share himself with you, to be with you, and to give you all of his gracious benefits. All of his gracious benefits. That's number four. We could spend whole sermons on this, but even our catechism helps summarize what are some of these benefits that flow out of and are shown forth for us in the Lord's Supper. It's it's justification, that you've been forgiven, you've been declared righteous, you belong to him, it's adoption. You're in his family, you have a place at the table always. It's sanctification, his spirit is working in you and changing you and shaping you and giving you new desires. It's assurance of God's love, assurance of God's love. You don't have to wonder. It's peace of conscience, the the gift that can only come through knowing Jesus Christ. And if you don't have peace of conscience, you know the pain doesn't matter how good life is, whatever meals before you, whatever joy is happening, if your conscience is weighed down, you can't enjoy anything, but he's given us peace of conscience. He's given us joy in the Holy Spirit. Not just surviving the Christian life, but thriving life abundantly through Jesus Christ. He gives us an increase of grace, the cup that overflows, and strength to persevere until the very end. In other words, from beginning to end, he gives you everything you need. 
certainly within all of the Christian life, but how much more so when we come to the table to receive his gracious benefits. As we think of coming and as you hear the table fenced, and we'll say more then, but of course we think of 1 Corinthians 11, that we're we're to prepare ourselves to receive rightly. And this looks like preparing our hearts sort of in a vertical sense, knowing I belong to Jesus, I'm fighting my sin, I'm not perfect. And there's also a horizontal, repairing relationships. In 1 Corinthians 11, that's the issue. It's actually not doctrine. It's when you come together, you're not pleasing the Lord because you're biting against one another. You're fighting. And so just like a Thanksgiving meal, right, uh, you know, the family is welcome to come, but there might be some work that needs done before you go to the family meal. You might need to make a phone call or two. Otherwise, you're not really going to enjoy the meal for one. And what a beautiful thing when family members, even that have had strife, are able to sit down at a meal together because they've worked out their issues. Christian, you might have some work to do after today. Um, Today might be a day to wait. You know, There's only a few weeks away for next month. You might have work to do in repairing relationships. But this table is not for perfect Christians. Weak Christians can and should come. Trembling Christians should come. I'll end with Watson again. He says, Has Jesus Christ made his gospel banquet? Is he both the founder and the feast? then let poor doubting Christians be encouraged to come to the Lord's table. Would you come to his table to receive from him? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. That it convicts us, it comforts us, and now even prepares us to come and receive that which Christ has for his people. And prepare our hearts then, Lord, that we would receive rightly, in a way that glorifies you. I pray that we would be nourished. And I pray this in Jesus' name.